They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! Welcome to Feed vs. the Living Dead, the podcast where your host, Feed the Terrible Aussie Jemine, explores the remakes, re-edits, reimaginings, homages, and unofficial follow-ups to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes Morgues and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. This podcast contains coarse language, mature discussions, and plot spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. G'day everyone, this is Bede Jemine, aka The Terrible Aussie, and welcome back to episode 10 of Bede vs. The Living Dead, the podcast where I dissect every remake, re-edit, reimagining, homage, spoof, unofficial follow-up, and so much more to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead Across All Media. And I want to say thank you everyone for tuning in to this milestone, episode 10. Can't believe I've already done 10 episodes of this little show, uh, especially covering with all the many different films and variations that I have seen of Night of Living Dead so far. But don't worry, there's still plenty of more coming up in the future. I'm only just at the tip of the iceberg so far. Believe me, there's going to be a lot of episodes throughout the rest of the year, including into next year, so I'm very excited to get to those. However, though, for tonight's episode of the show... I've been joined by a very special guest who's making his return after appearing on the very first episode of this show, and that, of course, is my good friend Derek Smith. Hello, Derek. Welcome back to Bede vs. the Living Dead. They're coming to get you, Bede. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if uh, my co-host Marcy was here, she would say they're coming to get you, Bede, brah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, how you been going, Derek? It has been... like I said, this is your first time back on the show since the very yeah. first one back in October. What has been going on since then? A lot. Um, I've moved into my own house that we purchased, which is big nice. news. Um, written a couple articles on neonsplatter.com mm-hmm. as well. Uh, got a couple things through there. And yeah, just been watching a lot of stuff, including the two movies that we're going to be talking about tonight. Indeed, indeed. We have two very interesting films to talk about for the show. Now, so far for Bede vs. the Living Dead, we have covered many different remakes of Night of the Living Dead. But these are kind of, even though, yes, these are kind of more independent productions, they still have, I still have quite a bit of a budget behind a lot of these. However, though, the two films we're going to be talking about tonight are the definition of independent films. These are very low-budget produced independent remakes of Night of the Living Dead. So I'm very intrigued to talk about both these films because I know we'll have a lot to talk about. So for this episode of the show, and we're skipping the question for this episode, which we already know when you first saw Night of the Living Dead back on the very first episode. So, (laughs) But uh, yeah, so for this episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the 2013 remake Night of the Living Dead reboot and the 2014 remake, A Night of the Living Dead. So 
Derek, I know you are a big fan and supporter of independent film, just like I am as well. So we're going to definitely go into both these films and talk about them because I'm kind of curious to see how, I guess, more how independent filmmakers approach this story of Night of the Living Dead. So we'll get straight yeah. to it, to the very first film, which, of course, is the 2013 independent remake, which is from Guffrey Films Productions, which, of course, is Night of the Living Dead Reboot. Hey, you remember when Dad used to take us out on, on drives like this? Basalts, Miami. You created something much worse. And now, they're covering up lies, saying these things aren't happening. As laughable as it may have been, at one point we are on the verge of a true zombie apocalypse. was written and directed by Lewis Guffrey, which is based on the 1968 film Night of the Living Dead, written by George A. Romero and John A. Russo. Uh, this film stars Paul Streeter, Megan Forster, Norman Summers, William Strudevant, Tammy Till, Till Austin, Ruth Miller, Logan Red, and Richard Reeves. Now, if I have butchered anyone's names in from the cast, please forgive me. And of course, the plot summary for this version of Night of the Living Dead is a group of random strangers from various walks of life find themselves trapped within a deserted farmhouse while under siege from an army of the undead. Now, before we go into this movie, I should state that even though this film on IMDb and quite a number of few places is called Night of the Living Dead Reboot, but when you actually watch the film itself, it just simply just comes up as Night of the Living Dead. But for the sake of confusion between the two films we're going to be talking about tonight, we'll just still call this Night of the Living Dead Reboot. Now, I've never even heard of Night of the Living Dead Reboot until I started doing research for this podcast. So I was like reading up on that one article from Medium, which I keep referencing a lot, which of course is Romero's Night of the Living Dead is the most remade film in history, which of course was written by Philippe M. Guerrero. That's how I discovered that film was through that article. And funnily enough, the film itself is actually, you can watch it right now as we speak on YouTube, The whole, which is, of course has been uploaded by the film's production company. So you can go on YouTube right now and watch it there. And also since it is only an hour long, so it's a pretty brisk one hour version of Night of the Living Dead. And what's also interesting to me is because since we're going to be talking about the differences between these two films tonight in terms of and since, of course, these are bo both this film and the next one we're going to be talking about tonight are independent productions, uh, the budget of this version of the film was only $700 US. So that's pretty impressive for a little movie like this, especially what it's set out to achieve. But the question is, though, how is the movie on its own? 
So, Derek, uh, what are your thoughts on, your initial thoughts, I should say, on Night of the Living Dead reboot? So, my initial thoughts were, I noticed first off that, you know, the intro definitely seemed pretty high quality for a low budget uh, film uh, with the music coming up um, and the credit sequence. I, I I was actually pretty impressed. The cinematography up front was actually pretty solid and the score isn't overly done till, you know, later on it does get a little overwhelming in some scenes, but they definitely, they tried to use restraint and when possible on this one, which I really appreciated. Um, And they did very clearly state that it's based on the screenplay. So it wasn't so much as based on the original, the movie. So there are some slight differences from, from the, you know, what we've seen on screen uh, in Romero's film, but in general, I thought they did a really good job, and especially for $700, they got a pretty good bang for their buck. Yeah, for sure. Like, I wasn't sure what to expect, but again, you know, this is a very, like I said, but this is a very low-budget independent production, and a, that's, you know, a remake of the classic film, so I wasn't sure what to expect. Like, I guess I was kind of going in kind of, uh, pro- it's probably not going to be that good, and I would say that the film itself on its own is quote-unquote good film. But I would say it's definitely an interesting little one for sure. Like there's definitely a lot of elements to this film that I definitely really liked and appreciated. At times, yeah, the the definite low budget nature of the film can hinder the film at certain points as well, and which we will go into as we go into the plot of the film. And some of the performances I did feel were a little bit weak. But outside of that, though, I guess because this film is like a very brisk one hour, like literally it's only just over an hour long. Like, the pacing is pretty good. Like, it hits all the beats of the structure of the original film. I mean, it sticks pretty close to the story, but it does make some pretty interesting changes here and there as well. Nothing, like, too big or major, but some interesting ones that, as someone who's covered this film multiple times on this show, I did notice quite a lot. I would say it entirely works as a whole, but it's definitely a mixed bag of a film that is still pretty impressive for what they were able to achieve for uh, the budget that they had. Yeah, I definitely think that given that they were able to stick fairly close, but then they kept it brisk, it was welcome uh, a lot of, that it definitely helps you um, overlook a lot of the the lower budget failings that it runs into but yeah in general i definitely i had a, a pretty good time with this one for as quick as it went coming you know i've reviewed plenty of low budget films um ranging in budgets it, i thought given this one it's not like you know kids playing with a camcorder or anything like that there's definitely attempts at like making creative shots um they definitely try to get the dialogue you know on different cameras uh and you know i definitely think there there is an attempt at artistry with this one rather than just aping the original yeah for sure and i guess we could go straight into the movie and we'll of course the film it starts off with a black screen, and of course it features a, a verse and chapter from the Book of Revelations in the Bible, which is a pretty well-known one in particular, and of course, which of course is 
And I looked, behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat upon him was Death, and Hell followed with him. Which is definitely, is something that keeps popping up a lot in zombie films, because I remember even in the Daughter of the Dead remake, the song The Man Comes Around by Johnny Cash actually used that quote within the song. So maybe it's a kind of a little reference, I'm not exactly sure, but it definitely kind of sets you know, the tone for the film. It, it definitely t- taps into the whole revelations and the times mm. thing for that. So yeah, that definitely leads to it being used so readily in, in these types of films. Exactly, exactly. So we're introduced to our, this film's versions of Barbara and Johnny. However, though, there's a slight name change with both these characters. Uh, Johnny prefers to be known as John in this version and for some bizarre reason barbara in this version is now called laura that is her name here so that's kind of like the first big change we get in this film but then of course once we see them as they're driving up to the cemetery because they're going up to see their mother's grave in this version we find out a little bit more about them because they're not sort of traveling from another town to the cemetery they're actually coming from a family reunion that they were just at prior And we also find out that uh, they do live in this town that the cemetery is in. Uh, John has been there for quite a number of years since their mum died. And after the death of their mother, Laura, and I'm going to make sure to say Laura, not Barbara in this version, so it's going to be pretty difficult, has since went to move to New York, especially because their relationship with their dad kind of soured after their mother's death, so she needed to escape. So she comes back and they have a bit of an exchange in the car on the drive to the cemetery. And I got to say though, I, you know, having seen the character of Johnny or the version of Johnny in through many different versions of this, for this show, it's kind of actually refreshing to actually see a version of Johnny, or in this case, John, who's actually quite a likable and caring character who actually does care for his sister and not is just making fun of her or scaring her just for the sake of sake of doing it and just being an absolute dick to her. Yeah, no, he uh, definitely cares for her. He missed her. Uh, you could definitely tell that, you know, they were tight uh, growing up. And he was kind of like the protector, especially with their dad. You can definitely tell that there was a lot affecting and going on with that. Whereas, you know, when the mom was still around, it wasn't as bad. But as soon as she was there, something was off. He definitely shows concern he definitely loves her and yeah he may rib her a rib her a little bit but it's not it's playful it's not like him just like tearing her down yeah exactly and especially once they actually get to the cemetery and there's this a nice little scene where they have a nice a bit of a talk and it sort of develops their characters a little bit more and then uh johnny gives her an old necklace that their mother used to own. And she's incredibly touched by this. And I thought, yeah, it's a nice little scene. And again, after seeing so many versions of this opening, where it's always like Johnny just, again, being an absolute dick to whichever version of Barbara is and whichever version I've watched for this show. Like, it's refreshing to actually see an actual good sibling bond in this one. And also, it's also a bit of a change as well, because in other versions, Johnny is usually portrayed as the younger brother, but here he's actually the older brother. Even though I think the actor in this movie kind of looks more like a dad, but that's beside the point. Um, (laughs) 
But I think, I'll, I'll um, have more to say about that later on. Exactly, exactly. And I think um, Richard um, Reeves, who plays John in this opening scene, I think he, for me, out of all the performances in this film, even though he's only in it for quite a short period, I would say he actually gives the best performance because there is a lot of sincerity to that to his take on the character, and he's very likable. And when he does, when we talk about it in a second, what happens to him in a, in, a, in a moment, it actually is pretty sad because we kind of wanted to see more of this this take on the character. For sure. Yeah, he is definitely one of the most... With low-budget uh, films, there's always... You have that balance where you have you're running so quick that you're not able to get as many takes um, in filming things. And so sometimes the dialogue really seems stilted. Um, There's pauses where there really shouldn't be pauses. And with John, that's not the case. He was very from the heart. His, his dialogue came across as him having a conversation with his sister and yeah, agreed. He was sympathetic um, and he was one of the most solid performance out of the film, in my opinion. Indeed. And actually, I mentioned this because I'm looking at my notes now before we go any further. I just remembered while on the drive there, uh, Laura is looking at her phone and she watches a news bulletin that's on the phone. But it's more of a conspiracy video where it basically kind of sets up what may possibly be going on, like in terms of the zombie stuff happening in the background, because in this kind of conspiracy video, it talks about that there's people are being attacked, the police and all that are blaming these attacks on bath salts. If you remember, bath salts were big back in the early 2010s, which if you took too many of them, you tend to go a little bit crazy from what I remember. Good old Florida man uh, exactly. coming up. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Definitely recall that time period. And yeah, I liked how they tapped into that a little bit. It does age it a little bit. Uh, in regards to this, uh, the storyline, but it was still a nice little touch of adding that in as well, for sure. Indeed, and it also kind of just shows like the time period in which this this version of the film is set in, and how to kind of also you know kind of relate what's happening in the real world into the events of this story. And then, of course, um, from there, Laura and John they go to their mum's grave. And from here, it kind of plays out very similarly as it is in the 68 film, even at points where it does come across almost like the dialogue is almost line for line. Once they do that, as they're about to leave, of course, John does the whole, they're coming to get you, Laura, kind of spiel. And of course, then they get, then Laura gets attacked by this film's version of the cemetery zombie. And this is where I like really love the character of John even more, because when his sister gets attacked he like runs up to the zombie and basically does a wrestling kick on the zombie and yeah, sends the zombie flying just like launches into him it's pretty pretty impressive it is <laughs> it is and then of course uh the zombie attacks john bites him and then during the scuffle he john accidentally kicks and knocks out laura so she's knocked out she wakes up a few moments later and sees that John is being eaten by the zombie. And I really, and I have to say this because I'm a huge Resident Evil fan, Derek. And I think the little shot where you see the zombie kind of turn around as it looks at Barbara, I have to think that has to be a reference to when we're introduced to the zombie in the very first Resident Evil game because that shot looked very silly. Can't be a coincidence. 
Yeah, no, that, 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 I didn't realize that when I first watched it, but now that you mention it, that's definitely spot on for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, with Laura waking up with her, the boot print on her forehead from John <laughs> kicking her in the head and then realizing that, you know, her brother is now a snack and <laughs> then the zombie turns around and yeah, she's then in trouble she, yeah exactly and she makes a run for it so she runs through the forest and then eventually stumbles upon a house this time though it's a little bit more tense because as she's trying to get in the door it doesn't open and more zombies are actually coming so it's just not the cemetery zombie this time it's actually a lot more zombies kind of descending upon the house so she makes it inside and kind of similar to the original film she locks up the house and then kind of wanders around the house kind of figure out exactly if there was anyone there or what's happening and the house itself in this version of the film definitely looks like it's in the middle of some kind of renovation so because there's wood and planks and everything everywhere so it looks like it hasn't been lived in for quite a while so it's definitely being renovated at that very moment and then of course we she stumbles across a photo of a father with his young son and then eventually she opens up a door goes upstairs and finds the body of the father up there being partially eaten so she freaks out runs out of the house and that's when this film's version of ben drives up in his truck and then of course uh ben in this version is played by paul streeter and then they run into each other and then eventually the zombies start descending upon them and they get back inside. Now, as we sort of notice, like Ben is a very important character within in all things Night of the Living Dead. He's always a character that, based on Dwayne Jones's performance, who gave such a commanding presence in the original film, that it's kind of a character that it's kind of interesting to see how many different actors kind of approach this role, especially throughout the different versions I've done for this series. However, though, I gotta say, I was not a fan of Paul Streeter's performance in this film. And at times it felt like he was playing the character as if he was in a parody of Night of the Living Dead rather than a film version of Night of the Living Dead. He had one good sequence of dialogues when he's first when they first come into the house and he's kind of telling about, you know, what he was coming up across. And then as soon as he starts talking about having to find the the gas canisters and stuff, it just, yeah, it turns into full on parody and the, the seriousness of the role is just out the window. Um, he no longer becomes like when I think of Ben, I think of the hero, the guy that is a rock that is going to take care of this and he's doing it because he needs to stay alive and then take care of everybody else. In this case, he's just in it for himself and he's working on pure survival mode, but not in protection mode. Yeah, exactly. And you kind of feel like at some moment, like it's just like the character is just going to start blurting out jokes or something like that at any moment. Like the character that is portrayed here, like I said, it, it feels like it would be belong in something like, I don't know, like a naked gun or scary movie. That's sort of how that character, he approaches his performance in that film. And it just sort of, and also his like line readings and how he approaches the dialogue is just not very good at all. And like anytime he's on screen, like the, I just kind of felt like, Ugh with his performance like he tries a little i think if he 
took a much more of a subtle approach to that role. I feel like it probably would have been a lot better, but then again, maybe it was just a case of miscasting in in this part. I definitely think that, you know, with Dwayne Jones, he was cast because he was the best man for the role. Um, And this was probably not the same case in this point. Uh, (laughs) Because, yeah, he he was definitely not serious he would and yeah he as you mentioned he is just a pure parody of the character so mm. so we get a couple scenes of like in the original film where we see ben and laura bond and of course laura goes into a catatonic state but unfortunately compared to the original film then it didn't feel believable to me like at least in the original film like with everything that does happen to the barbara character in that film it would make sense why she would go into into a catatonic state However, though, Laura here, though, like, yeah, a lot of traumatic stuff definitely happens, but you don't buy her going into that state herself because she just sort of, like, just sits there numb. Unfortunately, though, like, for the re- for a lot of her performance, and I feel a little bad about picking Megan Foster's... It, she does get a little bit wooden. Like, there are moments where Megan Foster is pretty solid as Laura, but there are moments where, especially when she does try to portray the catatonic state mode that she does come across as maybe a little too wooden and not quite believable. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, with the lower budgets, they don't have as much ability to reshoot scenes, probably rehearse things. And that definitely shows, unfortunately, with her performance. Um, in this case, I mean, just little things like uh, blocking the, the scene where she could be like, clutching that that necklace that her brother gave her you know or just looking off or you know through the doors and windows and stuff a little bit more like afraid just some some action in instead of her just like sitting there it would have come across a lot more effectively i think and it just didn't work (laughs) well in in regards to that Indeed, indeed. Of course, uh, once Ben goes around the house, kind of looks at everything and trying to figure out what to do in terms of boarding up the house. And of course, a lot of the film is shot in either handheld style or Dutch angles as well. So, <laughs> and, they, they um, try to get creative for sure. Yeah, they do. They do. And I got, I, I have to appreciate that. At least they, and also it kind of builds up the pacing of the film as well. Like having that camera, yeah. like move constantly throughout the film. Him and Barbara have a bit of a chat, and then Ben goes into a story that's very similar to the Beekman Diner story from the original, but it's changed to a different location. But kind of essentially, the story is still the same. And then Laura, sorry, making sure I say Laura throughout this episode, she goes into what happened to her and John. And then, of course, uh, Ben finds this bag that's in the living room that's full of weapons, food, lights, and also an MP3 player. So. They have all the stuff they need, and then Somebody's they hear it all. the radio. Yeah, exactly. Like, see, this is the modern take of, instead of having a <laughs> giant radio in the lounge room, it's now an MP3 player in this version of the story. Yeah. Gotta, gotta take advantage of that technology. Exactly, exactly. And they sort of kind of theorize about, like, what is happening, like, what they sort of heard. Uh, they've heard, like, it's a, definitely a viral pandemic. Uh, there's a lot of mass murder, and they probably tried to specify maybe Al-Qaeda 
could be involved with this again kind of showing the time period on which this film is taking place in so they hear a noise and then ben goes upstairs to the same room where barbara found the body of the father before and then he discovers the son who is now a zombie and (laughs) ben's reaction to when he sees the zombie child is actually absolutely hilarious and i just couldn't stop laughing and then of course he beats the zombie kid with the wrench and it's again like it's really i mean paul streeter tries but his performance just ends up when he's trying to be more serious in the role he just ends up coming across more comical with his performance and it just really hinders the impact of a lot of scenes the you could definitely tell that you know he was trying to pretend that he was hitting around the actual child yeah uh, where they probably should have like maybe chose a different angle so that he was actually able to physically hit something in place um because instead it looks like he's just like weakly flailing at (laughs) at the the child zombie which i have to give them credit kid zombies are creepy as hell and it, it i definitely give them credit for at least going that route um, and really taking advantage of it. And they don't, in the original, we do get one later on, but they're coming in not even a third of the way in, and we have a, an effective kid zombie. Is he taken out effectively? Not so much. <laughs> and the ironic thing is, though, like, even though I, the makeup, like, the, the makeup design for the zombies is kind of a mixed bag throughout the film, like, some of it does look really good, but other times it's obvious, like, they just put a bit of eyeshadow on people and that's about it. And having been on a low-budget, independent feature zombie film, I should know, because that was basically what my makeup was like in that film. So it was kind of funny seeing that in this film. But that being said, though, even though the kid is only on screen for, like, a few seconds, he's actually legit creepy-looking in this film. Yeah, and he, I think, yeah, it it was really effective, really shortly lived, but then, yeah, unfortunately, he was dispatched not so well. (laughs) Indeed, and it, it, it's really hilarious. Uh, I I wish this was a video podcast so that we could actually show um, the sequence because it is extremely laughable. Well, that's what I mean. Like, since the whole movie is up on YouTube for everyone to watch, I, I may have to put the link to the actual film so people can check it out. And again, like, you know, it's only an hour long. So, you, I mean, it's if you have an hour to spare, it's definitely a decent way to spend that hour. So, uh also, I like the fact that this movie is called Night of the Living Dead Reboot, and about half this movie is set during the day. <laughs> but uh, That's the rebooted portion. Is exactly. Rebooting ex- it in the day. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, once uh, after that whole incident, so time's a bit past now, it's now become night, and then we hear a... So we hear a transmission from the US government sort of explaining what is going on. And then all of a sudden, though, we're back in the lounge room with Ben and Laura. And then, of course, the characters of Tom and Harry pop out out of the basement. Everyone gets startled. And it kind of starts, it kind of plays out similar to like it is in the original film. So there's already, like Harry is already pretty much basically much of a dickhead as he is in other versions but now that having rewatched night and living dead again but this time on the big screen like yes in the original film harry is a 
a dickhead, but you can totally understand his motivations of where he's coming from, and you can even empathize with him at points. But it's funny, though, in every version that I have seen of the character of Harry in other films for this show, including the one we're talking about right now, he's only ever portrayed as a dickhead and nothing else. And (laughs) (laughs) very one-sided superficial approach to it for sure. Exactly. Exactly. And then uh, of course, uh, both are Harry and Tom played by William Strudevent and Norman Summers. And I got to say though, uh, again, I don't want to single out certain actors, but Norman Summers as Tom, his performance was very bizarre to me. Like, I, I don't know what it is about his performance. It felt like, during many times in this film, every time he would kind of go, because he's definitely a much more heightened character than the original Tom was in the 68 version. But here, though, every time, like, uh, Norman Summers as Tom is on screen, like, there are moments where I honestly felt like he forgot his lines and basically started either randomly, started improvising a lot, because that's how he kind of, his performance felt to me. Like, he would forget certain lines, or he would stop and then either had to quickly remember what they were, or he had to improvise something on the spot. Yeah, with Tom, I think the alternate title for this movie could have been Dude, Where's My Shotgun? (laughs) Because, yeah, he... Yeah, he was definitely, I mean, he makes Shaggy look like a a competent protagonist. Um, I'm talking, of course, Shaggy from Um, (laughs) Scooby-Doo. But yes, he's very out there and definitely not somebody that you want helping protect you, that's for sure. Exactly, exactly. But uh, of course, like like it's uh, stated before, this scene in a lot of ways does play out like it did in the 68 version. So we get the instant distrust between Ben and Harry right away. And even so, like at some point, I actually kind of felt a little bit sorry for, for Harry because Ben literally gets up into his face at one point and has the gun to his head telling him like, one of the famous lines from the from the original film. It's like, you're the boss down here, I'm the boss up here. And it's like, geez, this is a little bit extreme, Ben. Um. <laughs> there was no chill whatsoever. It was immediately, like, into the aggression. Yeah. And, it, and I think, again, like, um, with a lot of the films that I've discussed for the show, they kind of immediately go straight for that immediate aggression between the two of them. Even the 1990 remake, even does that as well but like with the original film it kind of gradually builds as it goes along like it's definitely there it's more just like them having a difference of opinion but as it progresses that's when things escalate but in this version and many others they kind of just immediately just go for that escalation right away um (laughs) and uh then of course we're introduced to the other characters are Harry's wife and daughter, uh, Helen and Karen, are are in this version as well. And they're downstairs in the basement. Karen, once again, of course, has been bitten by a zombie. And interesting, like Laura, having been her name changed from Barbara, uh, this film's Judy is now called Sarah. So I find it very interesting that even though this film, even though it does change little things here and there, and it sticks pretty close to the structure of the original film, for some reason, the Barbara and Judy characters have had their names changed. I don't know whether because they, fe- I don't, I mean, I can't speak for Lewis Guthrie, so I don't know 
what his motivations were for these name changes. But Lewis Guffrey, if you ever do listen to this show, please write to me and let me know because I am very interested to know. Whether he kind of changed the names because maybe the character, the names Barbara and Judy kind of sounded a little too old fashioned, I guess, compared to the other characters' names. My my wonder about that is because they did very clearly state out that it was based on the screenplay. Mm. Um, and I have not personally read the screenplay for the original, but I'm wondering if those were the original names and that they were changed for the actual production. Yeah, I'm kind of curious about that as well. So I may have to track down the screenplay and find out. But I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised the names are still Barbara and Judy in the script, but maybe again, they just kind of wanted to change the names here but i just find it interesting that it's really those two characters and in i guess in a little extent with the john character that they kind of changed up the names of these ones but i suppose though compared to the other characters in the film uh laura sarah and and to an extent john they've had a couple differences with their personalities like they've added a few things to them that make them slightly different from how those characters are portrayed in the 68 version. So maybe Lewis Guffrey, and again, I'm only speculating, so maybe he kind of felt like there was enough changes there that can basically be new characters, essentially. Yeah, and it is that would be interesting if they did try to go with new characters, even though they kept them very similar <laughs> to the, yeah, exactly, the actual exactly. characters, which is... Would be an odd choice if that is the case. Indeed, indeed. So basically, as like in the original film, uh, Harry and Helen are always fighting. And even at a certain point, Harry actually slaps Helen. But Helen slaps him back, so good for her. Um, (laughs) And then, so basically, they decide to kind of start boarding up all the windows. And that's when the zombies start coming in. Although I do find it hilarious at one point where literally Tom is getting attacked by zombies. They're trying to pull him out. And he's calling out for help. And Ben's is like on the other side of the room. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'll be there in a minute. I'm just nailing up this uh, this board. <laughs> However, though, when you see oh, them board, and I hate to point this out, as you see them boarding it up, they don't use nails. They just hit the wood. They don't. There's no nails or anything. Yep. And uh, they're not even hammering the uh, the wood or the boards into like the the walls and sides of it they're hammering it inside of the windows yes and it's like you're not reinforcing anything here I can yeah. Ab- yeah i can imagine it's probably because they rented out that house that that they're using and they didn't want to damage it so they basically will like we'll just have the characters pretend like they're nailing the boards and also how they're sort of put in the windows they can easily be sat up there so they don't move or anything that's why oh, i might sure guess the case. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it probably was it just it definitely doesn't add to the realism or anything like that to the, the believability of it though unfortunately in, yeah indeed indeed and then of course uh also the kind of show that uh the character of sarah aka judy is a slightly different character in this version because she actually is, has a little bit more to do in terms of the action. She just gets one of the guns and blasts a zombie away and has like almost Evil Dead style blood splatter <laughs> on her face. And she she's a character, and I actually like the, the actress who played her, who of course was Dana Stronix. And again, if I butchered your last name, please forgive me. I really liked her. I thought her character... Her version of the character was great, and I love that she didn't take any shit from anyone. (laughs) 
<laughs> Which is funny because she's with Tom, who yeah. is a chronic fuck up. So it seems a little weird that those two are together. I, I can They're... imagine she's more of the pants in the relationship. Just so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so they board up the windows. And so, like in the original film, they decide to make a plan to get out of there. So since Ben's truck is outside, it's low on on gas, and they know that there is a shed out the back that has gas canisters in there. So they decide to make a plan, get the canisters, and get out of there. So, as in the original, Ben and Tom decide to go. Sarah, she wants to go. Tom tells her, no, you can't come. But Sarah, again, she doesn't take any shit from Tom, and pretty much decides to go anyway. So they get into the truck. And here's also another big difference, and I can imagine this was definitely due to budget constraints, for sure. So once they get to the shed, and it's not like the petrol pump in the original film, it is like an actual shed that the petrol is inside. So they go there, the key of course doesn't open the door, so Sarah tries to shoot at the lock and then she gets attacked by a zombie. And I don't know how these zombies keep sneaking up on people. It can't be that hard just to notice them. But again, that's just me. Um, (laughs) And she gets bitten. Tom pulls the zombie off and they're about to get away. But Tom goes back for the gun that was dropped to the ground. And then he gets attacked by a kid zombie. And then, of course, other zombies descend upon them. Ben picks up Sarah and then runs off. So we got two big major changes here. Number one, the truck doesn't blow up in this version since the gas pump isn't yeah. there. And number two, instead of dying with Tom, Sarah actually gets to stay alive a little bit longer. Yeah, and Tom was taken out by that little kid zombie perfectly. It, it just totally goes for his Achilles tendon and just <laughs> he just crumples. I was like, that's an effective kid zombie there as well. That's a <laughs> Again, kudos for kid zombies in this one. Indeed, indeed. And also, I got to say, like, uh, the score for this film, which according to IMDb uh, is credited to Robin Guffrey and Josh Perkins, is actually a pretty decent little score for a film like this. It actually has a lot of creepy atmospheric moments, but it also knows how to build tension and action during certain moments. So it's actually a pretty decent score, if I say so for myself. Yeah, and it doesn't overdo things very much. would definitely have some things to say about our next film in regards to uh, (laughs) sound uh, for that. But yeah, in this one, I think that they did a pretty good job with keeping things and it kept it brisk again. Again, the, the hour running time definitely helps, but the editing and the score, they definitely make sure that everything is moving along at a brisk pace. Oh, for sure. For sure. So Ben and Sarah, they get back to the house. Sarah basically has a chunk of her cheek taken out by one of the zombies. And so, of course, another argument brews up between Ben and Harry. And then Helen, because she has her daughter Karen's phone, uh, they manage to get a news report on the phone. So we get a quick glimpse of a news report that states that the, the zombies in the film are infected with a virus known as, and I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget it, LQP79. So it's a virus called that. And of course, they sort of state like because of this virus, it can be trans transferred via uh, saliva, blood, bites, and you know, kind of the normal zombie stuff there. So when Harry hears that, he goes into a massive spiel, threatens Sarah with a gun. It's all oh, we have to kill her. She's going to kill every 
everyone. But then Sarah says to Harry, well, your daughter was bitten by a zombie. You might have to kill her too. And then during that conversation, Harry shoots her square in the head. Yeah. <laughs> he just he just straight up aims and fires. And you're like, whoa. Um, by the way, the LQP79 uh, virus uh, is actually rumored to be regarding the, the bath salts incident. Also oh. previously mentioned, um, oh. the, the, the incident in May 2012, um, there was, you know, regarding bath, one of the theories was bath salts, but one of them was also that somebody was infected with LQP-79. Oh, okay. A, a virus that supposedly destroys internal organs and affects the brainwaves to make you hungry for human flesh. Oh, wow. I did not know this. See, I, even when I was watching this film and they were very specific what the name of the virus a part of me did feel like it has to have been pulled from somewhere. That couldn't be just some kind of random thing that they caught up. And I'm glad you kind of did a bit of research into that because I didn't get a chance to do that before. I mean, I have done a lot of research for this episode, but in terms of that specific part, I didn't get a chance to. But it's really cool that, again, it kind of ties back to, you know, the whole bath salts things that keeps being brought up during points in the film. And funny enough, that showed up on Snopes. Ah, so. <laughs> so they're fact snipes. checking yeah they they had to fact check uh, a few a few posts online back in 2012 about this so i think that's where the the guthries um pulled that from so 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 pretty much like lewis guthrie was just taking everything that was just current at that point and especially with the whole sort of like mentioning earlier about the whole al-qaeda thing because this is 2000 and so this would have been over a year after when Osama bin Laden was killed. So that was definitely still in the public consciousness. And I guess that's a kind of an interesting thing about the film, because with the original film, because that film, with its story, kind of used what was going on politically and socially in America at the time as subtext within the story. Even though it's not technically subtext at all in this film, but I did like that at least... Guffrey kind of added all those elements to kind of make the film feel current and again bringing his own social and political commentary to this story or at least modern commentary to this story yeah no I agree it and it wasn't so heavy in the dialogue portion of it they did he did tie that in via the audio recordings and stuff like that so it added I keep coming back to it the brisk nature of this of this uh, that just ties all of it in together and that i appreciate all these little artistic choices to keep it moving along just snap 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 (laughs) exactly exactly so basically ben and harry get into a fight uh helen goes downstairs to the basement finds that karen is gone she finds karen and of course as we all know karen has now become a zombie and attacks her mom and as uh Ben and Harry are being fighting, the zombies start to break in to the house and they descend upon our main characters. Ben does get bitten on the shoulder at one point. Uh, Laura gets out of her catatonic state and actually grabs like finally and starts using (laughs) a piece of wood to fight off the zombies. And then she calls, she runs into the cemetery zombie who in this version is played by Okay. Bob Thomas. Who, uh, Bob Thomas, yes, Bob Thomas. And he's a really big dude compared to uh, Bill Hinsman in the original film. So he's like, he's like on a, almost like a wrestler's physique in this film. Exactly. 
And uh, and so he grabs Laura, almost like what wants to crush her. And then luckily at a certain point, Laura manages to grab a weapon and just starts stabbing him in the face. And again, more Evil Dead style blood spatter is like hits her face, which is pretty awesome. And then Harry try- grabs the gun and tries, wants to shoot Ben. And then luckily Laura th- th- attacks Harry. He pushes her back. And then luckily Ben manages to get a gun and shoot Harry. And then slightly different from this version. So Harry doesn't die in the basement as in previous versions. He he staggers back into another room and that's when the, the zombie, the, sorry, when the zombies descend upon him and actually start killing and eating him. So Laura goes to Ben, wants to get him out because they're going to get out of the house. But Ben tells her, no, nope, I don't think I'm going to make it. You go ahead, you get out of here and just leave me. So she doesn't want to go, but he keeps persisting. So she ends up running out of the house and into the night. So Ben decides to go down to the basement. He goes down there, grabs a bottle that a bottle of Jim Bean, which is kind of constantly seen throughout the whole film, goes downstairs and then Karen attacks him. He gets bitten again. He shoots her and then he sits down on the couch and then that's when... Uh, Helen starts to rise up as a zombie, starts to, like crawling towards him, and he knows that he's kind of given up. So a, a difference in this version, instead of like, uh, you know, in other versions where either like in the original film, like Ben's down in the basement, and then of course he gets shot by a militia later on in the story, or he becomes a zombie himself, like in the 1990 remake. So in this version, uh, Ben, knowing that he has no hope left whatsoever, he decides to kill himself. So he shoots himself in the head, which is actually quite, even though, yeah, I wasn't a fan of Paul Streeter's in the film, like the, like how this whole section is actually done is actually, yeah. actually does, was rather effective. I was going to say this was my favorite sequence with him, uh, which is unfortunate, but it, I mean, it, that was like the one time that it actually felt legit. It wasn't, it wasn't the parody aspect. It was definitely him like playing out the character. It, it, that was the Ben that we know. Yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> that was, you know, that was the, the Dwayne, him tapping into Dwayne Jones right there. And yeah, he was definitely, he was beaten, he was broken, and he he knew that he didn't have anywhere to go, but he also wanted to go out on his own terms. Yeah, exactly. Although for me personally, I probably would have just like uh, shot the Helen zombie first, so that way I'm not going to be eaten after I die, but that's just me. Um, <laughs> however though, I got so we get to the ending of the film, so this is the next morning. Barbara is wandering through the forest, traumatized Laura. and sorry. Oh sorry, Laura, sorry. <laughs> See, this is what happens when you change the name of a major character in Night of the Living Dead. I'm gonna keep referring back to the original name rather than the new name. So Laura <laughs> So Laura, she uh it's the next morning. So Laura is wandering through the forest and she's traumatized, she's dazed, she's tired. We stumble across a, a hunter who is wandering around the forest as well. And he's definitely part of like, would have been at some kind of posse that's going around and killing zombies. So he's going around, sees two zombies in the dif- distance, uh, raises his gun and shoots them. And then he sort of walks along a little bit. And again, Laura is still wandering, still wandering. She's just, obviously she is in a complete day. She's not aware of anything that's going on at this point. 
And then, of course, uh, the hunter sees her. He raises his gun and shoots her in the head, which again is similar to the original, the ending that we all know from the 68 version and other versions of this story. But I think, I have to say though, I don't know about you, Derek, but I actually found this change from making it, instead of Ben being killed at the end by this posse or a member of a posse, making it Barbara or Laura in this case of this film, it actually adds something, a different layer to the ending or at least what the film is trying to say because i actually found that ending this ending to be very effective it actually left a little bit a quite an impact on me and it started making me think about a lot of things that what lewis guffrey was trying to say with this ending because we all know with um the original film uh racism was definitely a subtextual element so it makes me wonder if maybe what Lewis Guffrey was trying to say, and again, I'm being speculative about this, is maybe he kind of wanted to add a bit of subtext about misogyny and what women are treated in society with the with this ending. Because yes, even though she, like this militia guy or posse guy, like he could have just easily have just shout out to see if, like, if Laura was a zombie or not, but he didn't. He just automatically assumed based on her movements and that she was in a daze that she was a zombie. But I mean, granted, you know, you know, Laura prob- would not have noticed him because she was already in her own world at that point. But if, you know, if that hunter kind of just basically just took the time to just basically shout out to, or any zombie, find out if they're actually zombies or people, then the outcome would have been different. But it's very obvious that he just just assumed that she was a zombie and killed her. So I'm kind of curious, Derek, your take on this new ending for this story. Well, I definitely appreciated kind of the bleakness of it. Mm. Um, as we talked about in the first episode, I am a fan of like the Greek tragedies. That's one of my things that I loved coming up in high school. And so just a good bummer ending is always, is always something that I love, but yeah, I definitely think that with the, the redneck hunter, him, him taking out, you have a good point about the possible misogyny of it. He took out two teenage girl zombies right before he took her out. And yeah, again, they were kind of walking around, pretty similar to her Mm. but it wasn't totally obvious that they were zombies so it's like he's just going around cleaning up shop and just going so yeah he was definitely very much a shoot first ask it not even have to ask questions he was just reporting back in afterwards so he was just shooting first (laughs) exactly exactly and he just yeah just didn't really have a care and just went ahead and just did it and of course it kind of makes you wonder like since we saw those two teenage zombies before whether they were actually zombies themselves or maybe they were two young women who went through a kind of similar thing as laura did and they were traumatized by it, and then he just assumed they were zombies and shot them. Like I like because you know they're off at a distance, and the make on them is very is not as overt as the other zombies in the film. So it kind of leaves it a little bit ambiguous. Maybe yes. they were zombies after all, and maybe it's just you know since this was a seven hundred dollar production, they couldn't have much makeup to work with. So you know they prop these two 
teenagers probably didn't have that much zombie makeup on them for, you know, since they were at a distance. So what's the point? But yeah, yeah. it kind of makes you wonder. And I think that's kind of the interesting layers that at least for me watching this film actually brought to the ending of the film. And I even like now having watching watched it twice so far for in prep for this show, it's actually a quite an impactful ending. And I'm still kind of thinking about it because of that. Yeah. And one lesser thing is so Keith Red, he was the redneck. Turns out he was also the joys of low budget production. He also handled the sound for oh. the entire movie. So gotta love when everybody is doubling up on a position so that not only are you being the final <laughs> one of the final actors you're also doing the sound for the rest of the movie exactly exactly so and of course the uh one of the final things left of this film is the last shot we see is laura holding her mum's necklace that's one of the last shots we see in the film and then we hear uh a voiceover like kind of similar to the conspiracy video that we heard uh, earlier that requotes the the verse from revelations that we saw at the beginning of the film although i have to say though like when we go through the cast list for this film i like that in this film there's a character called the truth who's credited as himself uh yes <laughs> the truth as himself uh imdb of course has them listed as david everett yeah. um but i did i did notice that when i was watching the credits i was like the truth as himself and i was like who is the truth? <laughs> <laughs> what is the truth? The, what also, is the truth? But the question is, Derek, why is the truth? <laughs> but Good uh, exactly, exactly, exactly. But uh, yeah, I guess that could be a wrap on this conversation of Night of the Living Dead reboot. And Derek, so what are your final thoughts on this little film? And also, should people check it out in your honest opinion? Uh, yes, if you're down for a quick little take on Night of the Living Dead, I definitely think this is worth the hour. Yes, it has its its hiccups and its flaws. Um, but I think in general, it actually has a 5.6 IMDb rating, uh, which given low budget films is kind of high. Uh, <laughs> so it, they definitely did as best as they could with what little they had. And I think if you're willing to overlook a few, a few things, it's a good little time for an hour. You're not wasting a human, uh, a whole bunch. Yeah, exactly. I, I think as a whole, I think it is a mixed bag. I mean, it definitely suffers from some of the like low budget flaws you would find in micro budget films such as this, especially for a film that, like we already stated before, cost only $700 to make. So there definitely is some flaws with, you know, some of the performances, a bit of the script, and even some of the filmmaking as well. And like I said, even the zombie makeup is kind of a little bit weak in parts. But overall, though, I think being that it is an hour long, and it is kind of a condensed version of this story. Like, it sticks pretty close to the events of the original film, but it does make a, quite a number of little changes throughout to kind of make it its own. And I do like and appreciate that Lewis Guffrey actually added quite, at least at the time when this film was made, a lot of political and social commentary into the film. I appreciate that he put those in there. So, and also it's pretty briskly paced. Like, you're not going to regret sitting down for an hour to watch this film and i have to say for a film that costs seven hundred dollars to make i'm 
pretty impressed for the most part. Like it had some pretty inventive filmmaking in parts. It's a couple of decent performances. Yeah, I mean, it's actually a pretty watchable film. I don't, I would say if, like I said, if you're interested in checking it out, it's up on YouTube right now. I will put the link to the film in the show notes for this show. And if anyone's interested, definitely give it a watch. I think it's a, a pretty watchable little film, nonetheless. Although I have to say though, it may have a five, like a five point, is it two rating on IMD? Yes, 5.6, sorry, rating on uh, IMDB. It only has one user review. So that kind of, <laughs> kind of says a lot because not that many people have seen it. It doesn't even have like an entry in Letterboxd as well so which is a shame so people see this movie so i can get a uh, an entry on letterbox just saying <laughs> but uh sure. we'll move right along to our second film for this episode which of course is another micro budget remake from of night of the living dead so we're going to be talking about the 2014 film produced by shattered image film a night of the living dead for what is going on, but the dead are coming back to life. Please, just stay inside. Which, of course, was written and directed by Chad Suva based on the characters and story by George A. Romero and John A. Russo from Night of the Living Dead. And this film stars Lee Godwin, Melissa Sue Sands, Layla M. Thomas, Sarah Burtz Thomas, Rebecca Daniel, Gad Holland, uh, John Frederick Clank, Lisa Marie, and J.J. Leahy. And the plot summary for A Night of the Living Dead is, during a visit to see their wife and mother's grave, Jerry and his daughters, Melanie and Barbara, are going to experience a night that they will never forget. Of course, like we already stated, this is another micro-budget independent remake of Night of the Living Dead. Compared to the previous film that we talked about, which had the budget $700, according to IMDb, the budget for this version was $20,000. So there's a little bit more little bit more money behind this one compared to the previous film. Um... I have a bone to pick with that. <laughs> a lot of times with these IMDb's, because it's listed as estimate. Yes. Um, a lot of times when that is added in, that is just something that twenty. I believe twenty thousand is one of the lowest amounts that it able is able to list as an estimate. If the filmmakers put in the uh, actual amount, it can be lower than that. But I do not believe they had $20,000 for this film. Well, I mean, we can only speculate. So I'm only just reading from IMDb. (laughs) But if anyone knows what the original budget amount for this film is, please let me know because I'd like to know for... So I can clarify it in the next episode of this show. Of course, I've heard about this film from the same article as I did from Night of the Living Dead Reboot. So it was kind of interesting that there were two micro-budget independent remakes that were kind of made and released about a year apart from each other. But they both approached this story in different ways. Some similarities, of course, 
uh, some even kind of still following the structure of the original film, but also making quite a number of changes as well. However, though, what makes A Night of the Living Dead interesting is that it's the first remake out of all the ones that I've covered for this show so far, excluding the uh, the short film Night of the, Night of the Living Bread, since that's more of a short film than anything. Uh, this is the first remake I've covered the show that actually goes back to the black and white format of the original 68 film. I will give them credit for that. <laughs> um, that's one of the few things I will give credit uh, for. <laughs> but, um, I guess we'll uh, get straight... We'll... Yeah, I was going to say, we'll, we'll get straight to it. Uh, we'll... So Derek, yeah. what, are you, what are your thoughts on A Night of the Living Dead? So I do appreciate that they clarified that it is a night of the living dead, not the night or just night of the living. It was just a night, a single night (laughs) for that. But for this, um, in low budget films, I've seen, as I mentioned earlier, quite a few. Um, This one definitely taps into a lot of the things that I don't like to see in low budget films. We definitely see the the lack of rehearsal, uh, the lack of using effective uh, for their locations, as well as an interesting path of taking uh, with their dialogue in our opening sequence. We have them going to see uh, the mom, and we see, what's wrong now? I have no reception. Why did mom have to be buried in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like uh, definitely not something that you normally would see in a script, uh, <laughs> but it, it was definitely uh, funny that they definitely fell in, into the trappings of the lower budget They're all across the board, unfortunately, but I will, I'll try to keep a clear uh, head and move forward looking more for some of the positive aspects of it moving forward now that i have that in my system indeed indeed um i guess for my thoughts uh on this film like i i I think regardless what i think of this film i admire any filmmaker who goes out takes a chance to make a feature film not just a short film just a feature film with the with the resources that they have regardless if they have money or a little bit of money like the fact that anyone goes out and makes a film on their own terms, their own way, with their own creative control. It's something I will always admire, regardless of my thoughts and opinions on the film itself. So I give kudos to everyone who worked on the film for going out to make a film like this. But because I got to be honest with my opinion as the host of this show, I just got to say, this film did not work for me, unfortunately. It really didn't. I think there are some interesting things in it, especially on paper, that I think Chad Suva was definitely wanted to go for with his story. Because, like, if I read the script of this, I would have been like, oh, yeah, there's some interesting things here that he's doing. Like, again, he sticks to pretty much the, the structure of the original, but he does add his own elements to kind of make it his own as a remake, which I do appreciate, and I appreciate... And that's the thing, though, like, with doing this show, like, a lot of people would just, like, brush off all these different versions of Night of the Living Dead and just... But I kind of, having done so many of them for this show, I want to dig in and find the differences and what these filmmakers want to bring to this story that has been remade multiple times. So I definitely appreciate all the new elements that he brings to it, but unfortunately, though, I feel like the execution just didn't work for me. It, in terms of filmmaking, writing, performances, it kind of just fell flat 
unfortunately. And it's a shame because I think I, I admire the passion that the filmmakers were going for for this, but unfortunately the end result just, it, it's just not good, unfortunately. And I, and I feel bad for saying that, but, you know, I got to be honest about these things. So yeah, it just didn't really work for me, sadly. Yeah, unfortunate. And when it does happen like that, but yeah, I mean, they're definitely, they tried. <laughs> I will definitely give them credit for that. But looking into it, even like finding out the character or the actress that played Barbara, Melissa Suzaz, she she received the role two hours before filming it. Mm. So there's not a lot of character building that you can do in two hours unless you're an improv god. But when you're having to come into a feature film, there's it, you need a little bit more preparation than that, I think. Yeah. And I know how hard it is to make films because I have made short films and that in the past. And even back when I was 14, I actually made a feature, <laughs> but it wasn't very good. So that nobody's ever going to see that film, The Light of Day. But um, <laughs> so I know like the process of filmmaking and like how hard filmmaking can be, especially when you're working with little to no money. But yeah, this film just didn't really work for me, unfortunately. And the only way we can really sort of find out why that is, is we, again, like in the previous film, we'll dive into the plot of this film. So of course, uh, it begins with our characters going to the cemetery. And again, it's to visit the mum's grave. However, though, there is a big change. And this is the first big change that we get from the story. So it's not Johnny yeah. and Barbara who are going to the grave. It's a family. Dad yeah. is Jerry who, of course, is played by uh, Lee Godwin. And then, of course, uh, he has two daughters, Barbara, played by Melissa Suzars, and, of course, uh, Melanie, played by uh, Rebecca Daniel. And Johnny is there, too, but in this version of the story, Johnny is not Barbara's brother. He's actually her boyfriend in this version. Yeah, it was a definitely interesting change uh, for that, that, that it was the father uh, coming along. Um, whereas, you know, in the other film, uh, we definitely, there was tension with the father uh, and, you know, we dealt with that um, familial, the brother and sister bond uh, with John and Laura. In this one, we, we now have the father and daughter bonds, but then with the addition of the boyfriend, and father with two teenage to early 20 daughters, you're usually kind of protective. And then you're bringing along the boyfriend who you don't really know that well, but you're bringing them along to your dead wife's grave. There's got to be a lot of tension going on there already. Now, Derek, I know you said that uh, the daughters are probably in their early 20s. What if I told you Melanie, the oldest, is actually meant to be 15? Uh, that would make sense since Jerry looks like he's in his early 20s. I was going to say, like, uh, they do put a <laughs> bit of makeup on the actor, Lee Godwin, to make him look older. But it's very obvious that he is not yeah. an older person. And honestly, when I started watching this film, I honestly thought that he was Melanie's boyfriend at first until, like, they started saying, oh, dad, at a certain point. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, I actually th thought the same thing until they did uh, calling him dad. If it was in the 2020s, I would think that he, and they called him daddy. I would think that that might still fall in line with the boyfriend aspect. <laughs> but I, since this was, you know, 2014, I don't think we were quite there for that. Indeed, indeed. And, uh, but 
My big issue with this film, and we have to talk about this, again, I know the struggles, what it can be to make a film, especially an independent production, but I think the main thing that really bothered me most about this film, and it's probably one of the main reasons why the film did not connect with me, was the sound design. It is, at times, it can be very muffled. Like, sometimes, like, I had to even go up and down with my volume at times, so whenever a character shouts it goes to almost like a very screeching kind of mode and I had to put it down. But then the whenever a character talks, it is so low that you could barely hear what anyone is saying. And I even had to turn it up as loud as I could just to even understand what most of the characters are saying half the time. And I feel like, again, I understand that this is an independent production, but I feel like if the audio was better i feel like it probably i would have been more involved with the film but unfortunately since the audio is all over the place and half the time i couldn't even understand what characters were saying it really put me at a distance with the film yeah and they definitely i mean they did have like a boom operator they actually had almost everybody in the cast actually was credited as being a boom operator so they actually they tried recording it but they may have just recorded it with the one boom mic and maybe off of what the sound off the camera, but there wasn't really like, you could barely hear when, as you mentioned of people talking unless they were shouting, which there is a lot of shouting. That is one of my, it, one of the tropes of low budget cinema that really irks me is when they go full on shouting and they're just, they don't have the audio technology to like, cut that down but keep it legible so yeah we unfortunately dealt with that a lot indeed and so they go over to visit their mum's grade and of course like that little exchange you mentioned earlier about uh barbara being annoyed that there's no phone reception at this uh cemetery which if you feel wanted us to really dislike the character of barbara in this version it did a good job just with that one line alone and eventually they go over to the grave and Barbara gets too emotional. So she goes off and then Johnny goes and follows suit. So they sort of have a bit of a conversation and all that. And again, one, again, like in every version of this story, he does do the coming, they're coming to get you, Barbara spiel. And then of course they have a run in with the cemetery zombie <laughs> who's very weirdly dressed in this version. Cause he's like wearing like, again, like a suit and a, and a, the big hat and it's like very oddly dressed so so he attacks johnny and so ba- kills johnny and then he then barbara makes a run for it she runs into her dad jerry and melanie lets her know that johnny's been attacked and then of course the cemetery zombie comes along uh jerry tries to push the zombie back and then they go back to the car and that's when the zombies start descending on the car barbara and melody are inside and as jerry's trying to fight off the zombies one of the zombies grabs Barbara and bites and kills her. And I, again, this is a subversive fix because, you know, usually Barbara is alive throughout most of the story. So the film actually straight up kills her at the beginning of this film. Definitely. And it it's funny because they made, they went through the effort of making her, you know, fairly unlikable. And then they kill her off almost immediately. It's like interesting that they went to that aspect of adding that additional because normally we'd expect her to be catatonic later on and dealing with the the grief and the the strife of what she's gone through and now we don't even have that 
she's just gone. We will spoil what happens next in the story, but it's kind of interesting, though, that they would get rid of Barbara in this story, but yet some of the traits that the Barbara character has in other literations of this story are now transported over to the Melanie character as the story progressed. But we'll get to those shortly. Although my favorite thing about this film, and this is, is that after when Barbara is killed, Jerry goes down, he's distraught. And as he's like there cradling Barbara, his poor other daughter, Melanie, is being, at- being attacked by a zombie in the back of the car. She is calling out for him for help. And it takes him a good solid five minutes to actually do anything. Um. <laughs> it reminds me of the scene from the other movie where uh, where Ben was holding the the door and he's like, "Oh, I'll be there in a second. <laughs> like it reminded me of that. <laughs> it was like, oh. indeed. And uh, so basically, he finally helps Melody gets rid of the zombie, and then they run off into the night. And also, as they're running through the woods, uh, this is where the day for night shots come in, which is weird because it's night in one scene and a little bit more day in other scenes. But you know, again, independent production, so I I digress. But then. <sighs> I'm just going to say it right now. The character of Jerry, played by Lee Godwin, I really hated this character so much. I feel like it's a mixture of both Lee Godwin's performance and how the character is written, because he's meant to be, like, he's lost his daughter and also his wife who passed away a year before. So I can understand that he's going to do whatever it takes to protect Melody, but he is so overprotective to the point he becomes cross as insufferable and also... Any time, any other character he meets throughout the rest of the film, he is very condescending and patronizing too. So in a lot of ways, he kind of adds, has a lot of the little traits of the Harry character in the other films. But even then, Lee Godwin's performance is just not good. I really didn't, I just don't think he was good in this role. And maybe it's obviously he's a younger actor playing this role. And I feel like maybe that might've had something to do with it, or maybe his inexperience. But yeah, he's, he's, I just really did not like the character of Jerry at all in, in this film. Yeah, we definitely need that balance of the unlike the surliness and the protective and the mourning with there has to be some redeeming quality to him as well. And there just really wasn't. Yeah, and also especially with how Mel Melanie is dealing with the rest of the story because she blames herself to what happened to Barbara. And, you know, Jerry is trying to comfort her. But a lot of these scenes where they're talking, they kind of feel like they're just repeating the same things over and over again. And which kind of makes the pacing of this film a bit sluggish at times. So they continue the run through the forest. They have a bit of a run in with a zombie along the way. And then eventually uh, they run to a house in a street. So another change. So instead of being a secluded farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, it's actually a house in a street somewhere where they hide out to. But before they go inside, they run into the character of Ben, who rolls up in his truck. He gets out. And then all of a sudden, a zombie in the back of the truck reaches out and attacks. So it makes me wonder, where did this zombie come from? He does mention previously that he was out with friends when all this was happening. So it makes me wonder, maybe one of his friends got attacked and he put them in the back of the truck to take them somewhere. And then they became a zombie in the meantime. But it's just like a really weird thing that happens. But again, um, the actor, uh, Gad Holland, I think Gad Holland as Ben, his version of the character, is definitely a lot better in this one compared to uh, uh, the actor who played Ben in Night of the Living Dead reboot. So, I f- but again, like even though he has he's better here, 
I don't feel like he really has a bit of a grasp on this character as well. Like there are definitely moments with, with the character that he's solid in, but also there are the odd comedic moments with the character as well. Yeah, I feel like, again, this version of Ben is kind of a mixed bag on terms of how this character is approached in this film. Yeah, again, we really don't see a lot of that heroic nature of the Dwayne Jones uh, character in this one. It is definitely more comedic relief, it seems, since we have the protection uh, the protection um, narrative coming from Jerry. I think that's probably why they leveraged it that way. Yeah. But he definitely... He did have some of my favorite lines in the movie, mm. um, but but yeah, <laughs> definitely, it is an interesting departure for sure. Yeah, and also, so uh, Jerry and Melanie run into Ben. They have a bit of a conversation. Again, some of the dialogue keeps being repeated over and over again, which is a little bit of annoying. Um, <laughs> so they try to get into the house. Like, again, it's like some of the, there are a lot of scenes that kind of repeat themselves because Barbara's, I mean, Melody, again, <laughs> Melody, she pretty much says, oh, there's someone in the house. And then Jerry's like, oh, don't say, don't do anything. It was like, who knows who it is. And they just do that spiel over and over again before they finally get inside. Once they actually get inside, we're introduced to the characters who are inside the house. And it's a mixture of characters that we know from previous versions of Night of the Living Dead, but there's also new characters as well. Uh, the characters of Helen and Karen are here. Interesting though, Harry is not in this film. He was actually killed off prior to the events of this film because uh, Helen and Karen and Harry, they were attacked and then the zombies killed Harry and Helen and Karen just went off, ran into the woods till they found the house and were also introduced to a uh, same-sex couple, uh, Samantha and Casey, who are the newest characters who are introduced to this film. And I actually really like these two characters. I thought they were a really great addition to the story. And again, it adds something different. And that's the thing I, I, I will... I do appreciate on a lot of levels that Chad Suva does with this story is he does bring some of these familiar elements to from the original into this one, but he also adds a new element to it as well to kind of make it his own. Yeah, and I agree uh, with the couple. I definitely do appreciate that new addition. And yeah, it, given that we had Jerry kind of as the overbearing, kind of a prickish, you know... <laughs> dad character I, I am kind of glad that we didn't have harry on top of that yeah because that i think that would have been overbearing <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so uh also we are introduced as we're introduced to the characters we find out that again another different thing from this version it's not karen who was bitten by a zombie early it's actually helen that has been bitten so again, it's another little different subversion and something new as well. So I appreciate that. And then, of course, the characters kind of talk things out, try to figure out what to do next. What And again, like a lot of these conversations with the characters, like uh, it's very obvious that, again, there probably wasn't that much preparation time or rehearsals with this film because how these scenes are staged, whether in terms of the characters, the dialogue, and also how shots and everything are set up it does get very wonky and and sluggish in terms of how they're uh, executed and also the dialogue half the time even though it feels like it's being improvised like i said like with the tom character in night of the living dead reboot it almost feels at times that characters may have forgotten their lines and so they fall back on just repeating lines that they uh, said earlier and, and, and a 
And if they're what's not, what's going they're, on yeah, has been yeah. uh, what's going on is asked so many times throughout this. So. Yeah, and I mean, if it's actually in the script, then fair enough. But it this—that's what it kind of felt like to me. Like it, yeah, it's almost like either a lot of improvisation or just ca- actors kind of just repeating the same stuff over and over again. So Ben goes around the house to find out if there's anything, anyone else in the house. And then, of course, he stumbles across a zombie in one of the bedrooms. He gets attacked, but he doesn't get bitten. And then they lock the zombie in the room. But luckily, they try to figure out what to do with the zombie. So Ben says, just open up the door. So he shoots the zombie in the head. So we know, figure out how to kill the zombies that way. And he's rather pr- proud of himself, too. Yeah, oh, yeah. It was the head that did it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that's kind of like the sort of the comedic moment moments from the Ben character in this one. I guess in this, like, I will appreciate that at least he tries to bring a little, the actor, uh, Gad Holland, at least tries to bring a bit of levity in some scenes as well. So especially because there are a lot of scenes where, and another problem that I have with this film is that the score is so inconsistent and very disjointed. The score will play very sad music in certain scenes and then during like scenes that are meant to be intense and scary the score doesn't really match the scene at all yeah it's almost like an indie rock ballad like starts coming in in the middle of them like talking about their plans (laughs) what they're gonna do and there's like that's really disjointed and really odd choice just because like they had that song that they wanted to include on the soundtrack so they just Mm. threw that in yeah for sure for sure and uh so the characters go back in the lounge room they keep discussing what to do more arguments ensue especially with ben and jerry and i realized it and it took and i when i rewatched the film again last night taking notes i realized that their character the characters are ben and jerry so uh <laughs> which uh yeah uh anyways uh <laughs> so there's definitely arguments between the two and then of course like ben i mean Jerry at a certain point kind of talks about like what happened to Barbara and he doesn't like he basically and I'm paraphrasing his dialogue but this is how some of the dialogue kind of came across to me is like his daughter Barbara her eyes look like the ocean and then when she became a zombie there's no ocean left in her eyes and stuff like that so again I really do not like this character Jerry and again I think it's both the way how he's written and also the performance maybe more of the performance than anything else but he just doesn't work for me as uh, a character uh as they're sort of doing that they sort of talk about cuz Ben's got a gun and they ask like how many bullets you got left so he only has two but he has more out in the truck so they decide to go get the bullets out of the truck again it's kind of a different thing from instead of petrol from the petrol pump they're going to get bullets out of the car instead or truck i should say ben and jerry i'm just going to keep laughing to myself every time i hear put those two together um (laughs) so they decide to go off they get to the truck ben is like trying to find the bullets but the zombies are coming closer so Ben tells them, we'll get out of here and lead them away and come back to the truck. Melanie, Sarah, and Casey see them from the window. They sort of debate, oh, maybe now that the zombies have been led away, we should go get the bullets ourselves. And then as they're discussing this, Melanie just darts off to go get them. Casey follows suit. So they go there, they manage to find the bullets, and then as they're about to leave, a zombie attacks Casey, but luckily she grabs the zombie, and this is how great this character is. She grabs the zombie and literally smashes the zombie's head into the truck over and over again, and pretty much actually even delivers a one-liner, because I can't remember the line that Melanie says, 
Oh, yeah, I, I now, now remember. It's kind of along the lines of, like, uh, Casey, the zombies... Oh, well, they don't say zombie in this version, so they keep that kind yeah. of Romero aspect. And it's like, Casey, it, she's dead, and Casey just says, deadish. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, yeah, Casey, I, Casey, I love you as a character. <laughs> yeah, I definitely... That was very badass, um, and definitely one of the re- uh, truly redeeming qualities of this uh, movie with uh, her. And then, <laughs> yeah, and as all this is going on, uh, Ben and Jerry again um, <laughs> are across the way, and they're seeing all this. And again, Jerry, it's like I gotta go help my daughter. I gotta help my daughter, and I'm like, oh, and Jerry, I- shut up. Um, <laughs> and I think I- this is the. Where Jerry actually trips and falls, yes. and then Ben picks him up and says, "Get up, Gandalf." Yeah, that happens <laughs> earlier in the scene. So, oh, okay, yeah. So that was, happens early in the early. scene. But I mean, I, I really hate that I'm like picking on Lee Goblin again. You know, <sighs> you know. I guess it's more the character than anything else. I don't yeah. really like this this character of Jerry. So as Casey and Melody try to get back to the house again, another zombie attacks them, I and again these zombies just pop out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> and yeah. actually grabs Casey, pushes her to the ground, and then Jerry comes over, and Melanie's like, "We got to get the zombie off her. We got to get the zombie off her." And Jerry's like, "No, it's too late. We got to get back to the house." And poor Casey is sitting there trying to pull off the zombie, and they, as soon as they run off, that's when the zombie kills. Like, and I'm thinking to myself, Jerry, you let Casey die. You could have helped her. Yeah. I mean, I get you want to protect your daughter. This is what makes the character so unlikable. He's more focused on protecting himself and his daughter and not worrying about protecting anyone else. Yeah, he's definitely not in it for the group, that's for sure. Exactly. And then and Lisa Marie, who plays Casey, she's killed off, which is sad because I thought that character, again, I think out of all the performances in this film, she's definitely was the standout to me because I thought she mm-hmm. was just was just had a great presence to her and so they get back inside Samantha is distraught slaps Jerry as she should and Jerry keeps saying there's nothing I could do there's nothing I could do Jerry there was a lot of things you could have done um, <laughs> that's just me personally I apologize once again for harpy on this but I'll so Helen comes out of the basement and wants to know what's going on and then finds out what's going on. And then Ben comes back around to the back of the house. And actually, during a pretty a little fun little scene, a zombie comes towards him. And so he has a bit of an idea. So he so he decides to push one of the zombies into a wooden fence, which is actually <laughs> just stumbles across him. And I found that in my research that the zombie who plays, who goes through the fence is actually writer-director Chad Suva himself. So, because <laughs> oh. nice. so, he was also the uh, the stunt coordinator for this film. So like, you know, the previous film, a lot of people in this production had a lot of hats on as well. So once Ben passes him, goes back inside. And I love the fact that even though this house has a lot of windows, no, nothing's boarded up in this house at all. And somehow the zombies can't seem to break through windows. <laughs> These are impenetrable windows in this edition. Exactly. and But it's interesting, though, because even though Harry as a character is not in this version at all, some of his traits are, again, are put into the Jerry character, but even some of the, his traits are put in Helen as well. So, which I found pretty interesting because even uh, Helen kind of just blames Jerry for what's going on. They have arguments and all that. And I thought that was kind of an interesting little thing that they did. And I have to give credit to Chad Souza for, for doing that. 
Yeah, and Helen is definitely, yeah, she's kind of playing double duty in regards to the worried parent side of things. So, yeah, she definitely has to take both aspects of the Harry and Helen characters. So Indeed, and uh, so a t- bit of time goes past, and then the characters are, again, discussing what to do. So we have a lot of, s- some scenes of character development. Jerry goes into, like, what happened to his wife and Melanie's mum. Also, there's a scene where basically uh, Ben kind of really surprisingly puts down the Samantha character because she, and I'm paraphrasing this line, but I had to kind of write down from what I remember in my notes, is basically he says to Samantha, it's like, you know, you're not thinking straight because your brain isn't working because Casey died. And I thought that was a very harsh thing to say to her. And she was going to kick her while she's down. Yeah. And all she was suggesting like ways on how they can get out of the house. And, you know, Samantha is actually right in this situation. And, and, (laughs) but to, I give Ben a benefit of doubt. He realizes pretty quickly what he said was wrong and he does apologize for that. So Helen takes Karen downstairs and then they discover that there is a radio downstairs as well. So they bring that up, tune in to try to find if there's a radio station. And of course, uh, Jerry and Ben. I'm just going to say it that way, because if I say Ben and Jerry, that's just going to keep me making me laugh. Um, so Jerry and Ben, again, have another argument, as they usually do. And it even gets to a point where it's like, just when I thought the character of Jerry just couldn't get even more unlikable, he kind of acts like a dick to Ben. Basically, he says, oh, well, Ben, you're the boss. What should we do? Being very patronizing towards him. And Ben's like, oh, why? Basically, like, why are you acting this way? And Jerry's like, oh, is this payback? And Ben's confused, like, what do you mean? He says, like, uh, and Jerry literally says it straight to his face, for being slaves. And kind of shows that uh, Jerry's a bit of a racist. Um, (laughs) And and rightfully, Ben... And so they get into a fight, and Ben rightfully punches him. So that's the thing. If this movie was trying to make us at least kind of sympathetic towards Jerry about everything he's going through, it's definitely not, at least for me. So... Yeah, I was kind of kind of shocked that, and it comes out of nowhere, that line as well. And I guess um, it's, they wanted to kind of, because, you know, with the original film having that racial subtext, they wanted that to be yeah. in this film as well. But it just felt very clunky and just out of place compared, because it's never really kind of set in the rest of the story. Yeah, and that's one of the, you know, from the original, of course, it's, subtly added in and referred to but in this one yeah it's just like let's hit you over the head with it and then not deal with it really moving forward beyond that and also like i think in a way this film with with the character of melanie because even a scene earlier is like she goes downstairs too lets out a scream jerry goes downstairs and finds that she's she sees a spider that she thinks is real but it ends up being a toy spider so I, I th- even Melanie, like, I definitely empathize with the character of Melanie, but I don't know how I felt like how the character was portrayed in this film. It, Because, it, like, again, it kind of, Jerry kind of treats her. Like, I know the character's meant to be 15, but he gets really overprotective of her. And it even gets to a point, once they turn on the radio and discover that these things are people who come back to life, and if you get bitten by them, you turn into one of them. And then when Jerry kind of realizes, oh, that's what happened to Barbara, he doesn't want to tell Melanie that because it doesn't want to upset her. And then eventually they yeah. do. And it's like all these scenes. It's like he really kind of treats the character of Melanie like a child. I know every parent loves their kids and want, wants to do to protect them, but he really is kind of condescending to Melanie. 
a lot of times yeah, in this film. He's treating her more like a five-year-old than a 15-year-old. Mm, exactly, exactly. So after all this type of stuff, zombies break into the house. Uh, we'll try to break into the house. Uh, ben and Jerry, there we go again. Uh, they <laughs> hold them off at the door. Melody is terrified, and then this the sad music type, this sort of a ballady song plays, and it makes very dramatic music. It's like this piano score, and it leads to a song. And she has flashbacks to what happened to Barbara, and then she looks over, and then uh, Samantha is zombies are coming in through the window. But I love this 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 bit. I will admit, baby, laugh because the zombies didn't break through the window. That window was already open. Um, yeah. <laughs> again. Probably budgetary reasons, of course. Um, <laughs> so luckily, Bob Melody, sorry, uh, she gets out of that state. She goes to help Samantha. And while this all this is happening, uh, Helen's downstairs with Karen and she's getting more and more sicker and eventually she dies. And again, I just love this scene because Karen, she wants to go back upstairs to see the others. And she, even though her mum, like who she thinks is asleep, she literally drags her. Yeah, she drags the body. Drags the body. She doesn't just leave her down there, yeah. Exactly. And then eventually she gets up and then uh, Helen turns into a zombie and attacks Karen. Again, another subversive thing and something different compared to what we've seen before. And even, I'm surprised Karen took it well. She didn't scream or anything. It was like, whoop. Oh, well, I'm dead now. Yeah, <laughs> she just falls over and, like, she's like, ah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So Helen kills her. And so the gang upstairs, they decided, you know what, we're going to make a break for it. We're going to get out of here. Yeah, they just run out of the house. And luckily before they do, Ben finds a torch. And so they have a bit of a light to go their way. So they get out of the house. They run through the forest. And about halfway through as they're running away, Samantha realizes, oh, shit, we forgot Helen and Karen. And I'm sitting there, how could you forget those two? Yeah. And then she runs back by herself. She doesn't have them go as a team. She runs back by herself. Well, she does say to, like, uh, yeah, well, she does say to Jerry and Ben, you guys go on without me. I'll catch up. I'll go yeah. get them. So she goes off back to the house, goes to the basement, discovers Helen eating Karen. So she's freaked out. And as soon as she turns around, that's when she discovers, uh, the zombified version of Casey, and she becomes terrified. And in an incident like this, which seems to be happens in quite a lot of zombie films, like she is stunned that, you know, Casey is alive. So, and then of course, Casey attacks and kills her. And then we go back to Jerry and Ben. And then again, another sort of unintentionally funny moment, they sort of run into each other. And Ben says, I, I got to go back to the house. I forgot Samantha. I'm like, <laughs> <You're> just... <laughs> So, and, and Jerry asks, well, what happened to your torch? I said, I dropped it somewhere along the way. So Ben heads back to the house as well. He gets there, discovers zombie Casey, shoots her, and then sees that now Samantha has become a zombie. So he just goes down to the basement. And as he's down there, he sees Helen, who and she comes towards him, and uh, he kills her as well. And then, of course, he sits down in a chair, sort of checks his bullets and seeing what he has left. And as this is happening, Karen rises up, comes towards him. And I thought this was actually a pretty effective filmmaking technique, is that Karen's about to lunge at him. He notices her. And then we zoom out, we cut to outside, and then we hear a shot. So we don't know what happened. Did uh, yeah. Ben shoot Karen or did Ben shoot himself or did Karen kill Ben? So it's left ambiguous about what happened which I thought was actually quite effective. And I thought that was an interesting kind of way to 
how to deal with Ben and that sort of his scenes in the basement and what happens to him at the end. And then we yeah. get back to um, Jerry and Melanie. Melanie's running through the woods. She trips over, hurts herself. Oh, before I go into the next part of the movie, uh, one other thing about Jerry. <laughs> when he's talking to Samantha about going back to the house, he says another pretty heartless thing. He said, and he says, she says, I want to get, go back to the house. And they ask her why. And so, well, we forgot Karen and Helen. And he's like, so? Yeah. <laughs> That's like, you uncaring bastard. <laughs> no, no worry about them whatsoever. He's just all in it for himself and his daughter. That's it. Exactly, exactly. So basically, what happens next is Melody's running through the woods. She trips over and hurts herself. And she hears a noise. She grabs a big plank of wood. And it's actually, and see, she swings around and actually hits Jerry. And deservedly so, because Jerry needs a good hit. Um, <laughs> they have a bit of a conversation where Jerry pretty much tells her, like, no matter what happens, just keep running, just keep running. She doesn't want to go, but he just keeps telling her, just run no matter what. And then they get attacked by a zombie. Jerry gets bitten and Jerry manages to kill the zombie and then he dies pretty quickly and this film does have try to have an emotional scene between Jerry and Melanie but again the performances just don't really work in this scene so it doesn't quite come across as effective as it could have been as Jerry dies uh, Melanie uses the stick to stab Jerry in the head so she makes a run for it and as she's running along she runs across her sister Barbara, who's now a zombie, and she's not sure what to do. Like, she doesn't want to do, like, hurt Barbara, and she's conflicted. And then all of a sudden, a, a sheriff and his deputies stumble across them, and they shoot Barbara in the, the head. So Melanie's saved. That, that of course, uh, the sheriff, who's played by J John Frederick Clank, and so they have a bit of a talk and she explains to him like, uh, I just ran from a house. There are other survivors there. We need to go get them. His deputy notices the scratch on her arm. It's like, have you been bitten by those things? And she says, no, no, no. And he goes to raise her, his gun at her. But the sheriff says, no, we're not doing that. So leave it alone. But they go off and have a little conversation. And then when they come back and the sheriff says to Melly, all right, walk us to the house and we'll go find if anyone is alive. And as they're walking along and she's telling what, exactly what happened to her dad and the others during the night that's when the the deputy shoots melanie in the head yeah yeah so it's an interesting thing that covering both these films they kind of have very similar endings where the main female protagonist is killed off at the very end however though like i could definitely understand the motivation of the sheriff and deputy but it's very obvious when you look at the wound it is not a a zombie bite it is obviously a scratch uh yeah. <laughs> but that being said though the sheriff like as he's kneeling over you can definitely see like he definitely is very sorry about what happened like he at least he feels a bit of guilt about what happened so like compared to other characters from say hunters posses or police officers who kill the main characters at least you can get a little bit of a hint of like guilt in what happened even though in his mind at that moment regardless whether it was the right thing to do or not because they didn't know maybe she would have been lying about the zombie bite like we know that she yeah. wasn't but even though you can't i guess in a way like you can't blame them for it but even though yeah they should have like maybe just kind of waited it out and see what happens rather than just you know killing her right away 
yeah, there's the remorse of, you know, it, you know, hey, we may have done the wrong thing, but we also, we're trying to protect ourselves. But then again, can I trust this person working for me that mm. is such a quick trigger <laughs> in regards to this? So there's that added layer to it as well. Oh yeah, for sure. But then again, you would have to wonder, like, if they, the sheriff and the deputy talked about this, because they do walk off a little bit, have a discussion and come back. So it's obvious maybe the sheriff pretty much told her, okay, we'll make her think we're going back to the house. And when she least expects it, shoot her then. But then again, who knows, maybe he wanted to go help her. And then of course the, the deputy did just have a trigger finger, like you said. But uh, so basically that's where the movie ends. It ends right there. With he with the sheriff closing Melanie's eyes, and then it cuts to a montage over the credits of zombies running around the countryside. And my favorite little moment in there is like there are a bunch of zombies going cross swings, and one of the zombies falls into the swings and gets swung around. And I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know whether that was just like a fu- something that happened that they just added in there. I just thought it was like it was a funny little moment they put in there, especially because the movie plays itself very seriously. So it's weird having that kind of odd comic moment just in there. Yeah, and the, the of course the end is they have like a it's like a punkish kind of rock song playing over the credits now Mm. and you're like and then it it is fun that they did throw that in but it's definitely interesting that they're kind of playing off of like they're trying to leverage the seriousness but then also the kind of goofiness because it reminds me of the ending of uh dawn of the dead the Zack snyder version where they end up like the down with the sickness Mm where you have that kind of goofy wink and a nod at the, you know, hey, things are bleak, but we're down with the sickness. <laughs> but, but before they do play that punk song, they do play the sort of the the piano ballad song from oh, earlier yeah, in the film prior to that, the kind of set the kind of the somber mood of the story and then <laughs> the punk song comes in. However, though, it's not the end of the film just yet. The film actually has an end credit scene. We have an end credit scene. And for the first time in any of the versions, actually, no, might be the second, might be the second, Ben lives. Because ben it, end, lives. it ends with going back to the house and Ben coming out of the basement. And his last storms line. Storms out of the basement. <laughs> yes, he storms out of the basement. And his last line is, and again, I probably. It might not be the correct line, but given, you know, how muffled the sound can be at times, it can be hard to distinguish at times. But his last line is, uh, she's dead anyway. And then, and that's where the movie kind of cuts to black. So yeah, for the first time ever in any of these remakes, Ben actually survives in the end. Yep, he survived it. And yes, you are correct. It was She's Dead Anyway. Um, I actually wanted to I wanted to get that quote. Um, so I even turned on closed captions and rewatched that sequence. <laughs> and it, it just it cracked me up. It, just him bursting out and it was like, ah, she's dead anyway. And then boom, then we're done. <laughs> Well, I guess it's also to kind of, given how somber the film was at the end, I guess they, yeah. uh, the filmmakers wanted to kind of give that last bit of levity at the end. Because, like I said, this would technically be the first time Ben has survived at the end of Night of the Living Dead. Because I could easily say that Mimesis, Night of the Living Dead, which I talked about two episodes back, 
had that Ben character live. But in that version, that's more of a, a person who's been forced to portray the Ben character in a yeah, meta. He was like an homage in a yeah. slash meta yeah. version. Yeah, exactly. So that tech- so it's kind of half and half with that, but at least in this version, it is fully Ben. So it's the first time he's survived in any of these films. Ben has survived. It's wonderful, exactly. So we're going to have to make... Thing. Exactly. So, uh, yes, you heard that right, people. Ben lives in this version of the film. Yeah, I guess that could be a wrap on this conversation of A Night of the Living Dead. Uh, Derek, what are your final thoughts on this film? Uh, this one is definitely a rough go. It Whereas the first movie that we talked about was very brisk and it zooms by at the hour. This one's an hour and 24 minutes, I think. It seems longer, unfortunately. I would say that um, the credits are probably almost, and I'm again, if I'm not exactly sure the the length of the credits, but I think the credits would have to be at least somewhere between eight to ten minutes long because I know the film kind of that is true. F- film finished it around about say the hour and twelve or thirteen mark, and then had a couple of minutes of credits left. Well, and they did credit every single zombie, mm. and there was quite a few of them in this. Exactly. I, I will definitely give them credit, is they had a ton of zombies in this, and most of them in the final credit sequence and montage. Uh, there was a lot of a lot of them there. Yeah, it's so it does overstay its welcome a little bit. The repeating of the lines and the what's going on, what's going on. Um, that does add to it a lot in general. I mean, it is a lower budget take. If you want to see an, a different aspect with like the Samantha and Casey, that's a cool aspect that would have been fun to see more of those two characters. But yeah, in general, it was a watch. It was. <laughs> it's by far not the worst thing I've ever seen. I've seen a lot of really bad low budget stuff, but it's definitely also not my favorite. It didn't really work that well for me. My final thoughts on uh, A Night of the Living Dead. Like, even though I, I do feel a little bit bad about making fun of certain things from this film while talking about the plot summary, but it, there were moments where I did the film, I just found kind of funny whether they were intentional or unintentional and stuff like that so i do i do feel a little bit bad because at the end of the day i know with films especially low budget films it is very hard to make a film like this whether you have the resources or not and at the end of the day like even though i this film did not work for me overall i do commend that chad zuza and his cast and crew you know went out and made a film because I think that should always be celebrated. Like not only this film, but even with Lewis Guthrie with his film as well. Like any filmmaker should be celebrated to go out and make a film, regardless whatever the quality of the film is. But at the end of the day, though, like I have to be honest about my opinion on the films, whether they do work or not. And uh, uh, with uh, Shattered Image Films' um, take on Night of the Living Dead, with A Night of the Living Dead, yeah, it just um. It just really didn't work for me. Like, there's too many flaws. The performances are just all over the place. Uh, particularly Paulie Godwin, who played Jerry. I just really did not like that character at all. And even though there are a lot of interesting elements in the script, like, I appreciate that Chad Souza put those in there, but I just don't feel like the execution just worked in the end. Um, but yeah. that being said, though, like, I think 
I, I'm definitely curious to ch- check out Chad Souza's other works, just to see how they sort of compare to this one, and especially even Lewis Guffrey as well, if he if he has made other films as well. So he is definitely uh, uh, definitely made others, and I know like so like Kayla Elizabeth, um, she was uh, samantha um i I was actually familiar with her before watching this um because she she's gone on to do other stuff in the ohio area um she's filmed with dustin mills Mm -hmm. um who uh he's uh, done like puppet massacre uh, puppet monster massacre and a few other really fun low budget movies that involve some pretty creative special effects um, but he has worked with her on a couple of things. Um, and I know there's quite a few others. They, they've, they all have multiple credits. They've definitely gone on and leveraged using this as a learning tool. So I am definitely glad to see that because they didn't just, you know, get overwhelmed and just move on in their movie making. And they, they literally just, they, went and moved forward and made another uh, piece of art later yeah. on which is great exactly and i think um yeah like no matter what my opinion or your opinion or anyone else's opinion is on the overall quality of not just these two filmmakers but any filmmakers if you go out there and just still keep doing it keep delivering the work that you want to do and also just make the films that you want to make and also regardless what anyone else thinks if you still have that passion to make film go out there and still do it because we need more filmmakers in this world and we want more voices from all walks of life to tell stories whether they are remakes of night of the living dead or other original properties as well so yeah i think at the end of the day like regardless on what we thought of these two films like you know we definitely have a lot of appreciation for independent film for low budget film especially genre filmmaking and you know the hard work that these people put in so yeah i think yeah even though i i definitely say between the two I definitely preferred Night of the Living Dead reboot a lot more than A Night of the Living Dead. But, you know, I appreciate that these two filmmakers at least went out of their way to create these two films and brought something to this story in their own way. That that makes these two films feel unique. For sure. And, you know, if all else fails, I mean, we have one movie that Ben lives. Exactly, exactly. And that's the legacy that this uh, Night of the Living Dead should have as being the only Night of the Living Dead film, at least (laughs) that I've covered so far for this show, that Ben lives. So kudos for that. I think that could be a perfect way to uh, wrap up this episode of Bead versus the Living Dead. Thank you, Derek, for coming back on the show and uh, talking these two films with me. Thanks for having me. And in the words of uh, Ben... Get up, Gandalf. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, so, Derek, where can people find you on the internet this week? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, um, at, and my username is Darathus. That's D-A-R-A-T-H-U-S. Um, I have in my pinned uh, tweet, I have a self-promo thread, and you can go through and see links to other podcast appearances on the Super Network, um, as well as some articles that I've written for Neon Splatter, as well as some stuff where I originally wrote for the Screamcast, which is where Bede and I originally met. Damn straight. So... (laughs) <laughs> yeah so check out my twitter follow me 
talk with uh, talk about weird movies and tv shows i'm uh, i'm down exactly exactly and uh if people want to find me personally they can find me at my twitter page at twitter.com slash bjamine and of course my letterboxd account at letterboxd.com slash bjamine and of course you can find all my other podcasts that i do over at the super network with my bestie and co-host super marcy uh which of course derek has appeared on quite a number of shows over on that network and will be again in the future nudge nudge wink wink um <laughs> and uh also uh if you want to find all things bead versus the living dead you can find this podcast on all podcast streaming services everywhere uh and if you want to please leave a rating and review for the show because i would and i will read the reviews on the show um <laughs> so that way it like kind of gets the word out there with this show as well and also you can follow the official twitter account of this podcast over at twitter.com slash bead that's b-e-d-e then v-s-t-l-d so yeah that is an end for episode 10 of bead versus the living dead i hope you all enjoyed this episode of the show And come back in two weeks' time for episode 11, in which I will be discussing the second animated version of Night of the Living Dead with Night of the Living Dead Darkest Dawn, and as well as a rescoring of the original Night of the Living Dead with Night of the Living Dead rescore. So stay tuned for that, and we'll see you all later. See everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Feed vs. the Living Dead. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player of choice. Keep up on all updates of the show on the official Twitter account at BeadVSTLD. The music for this show was brought to you by Denno. See you next time, everyone. Goodbye.